Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. At the same time that Benjamin Disraeli was starting to make waves in the Conservative Party, something was stirring in synagogues up and down the land. With the establishment of the reform movement, there came choral music and even organ accompaniment, both new to Jewish worship. Meanwhile, Anglo-Catholics of the Oxford movement were trying to sharpen up the musical offerings in their services. Before long, composers and arrangers were borrowing from each other's traditions, bringing Jewish melodies and modalities into the heart of Victorian musical culture. Fast forward to the year 2000 and a creative group of British Muslims sets up a media company called Awakening to record and disseminate Islamic pop music, a genre which had been going on under the radar for a few decades. It's very different from what was happening in Victorian Britain, but there are parallels. And it's those parallels we want to tease out this week. Musical networks is our subject. Let's start, as usual, with some science. People have been trying to figure out exactly how music affects our mental and emotional states for a long time. Here's Ian Cross comparing the research specialists have done into language and musical stimuli. They found that knotty bits in the music affected perception of knotty bits in the um, speech and vice versa. What that suggests is that a prior hypothesis, the shared syntactic resource integration hypothesis, snappy title, um, was in fact correct. And this hypothesis suggests that in in language you, you have representations of words, word meanings if you like, stored in particular locations in the brain. You've got, in, in music, you've got representations of pattern stored in other locations in the brain. The bit that's shared is the, the bit where legitimate order is sorted out. They suggest that there are common Um, cognitive and neural resources implicated in integrating the temporal structure in both language and in music. Ian Cross speaking on the Naked Scientist show Caffeine, Friend or Foe. Joining me to discuss musical networks are Dr Danielle Padley, research fellow here at the Wolf Institute and music director of the Kol Echad Choir, that means one voice and consists of a group of Jewish singers in Cambridge and Jonas Otterbeck, Professor of Islamic Studies at the Aga Khan University in London, and author of the book The Awakening of Islamic Pop Music. Welcome both. Without getting into the intricacies of brain research, 
the social implications of Jewish music making in 19th century Victorian England and the birth of Islamic pop in the mid-20th century would seem to be very different. But are there parallels? I think there's a hugely important social aspect to them. Um, certainly thinking about my research into the Victorian Jewish community, even outside of music, identity was a, a huge aspect of what they were trying to understand for themselves and what they were trying to portray to others. It was a big deal for Victorians in general. There was a lot going on during this period to make them question their identity as British citizens in terms of their religion. And the Jewish community as relatively welcome outsiders were having to battle with this on an even, even greater level. And so from a musical perspective, I find when I perform concerts with Paula Hud that people are generally quite surprised at how familiar a lot of our repertoire sounds because it comes from 19th century Britain and 19th century Germany, Austria, where the communities were really trying to equalise, I suppose, their religious and their national identities. And that really comes across in their music. Jonas, I suspect there are parallels with Islamic music, aren't there, in modern times? There yeah, are, and, and not least that aspect of being socialised uh, into a new society, both as a grown-up and as a child, not least as a child growing up, and then taking on different forms of expression that you feel for and that you are socialised into liking. And actually there are yet more parallel, because in Liverpool, for example, in the mosque that was started by William Henry Abdul Kiliam. One of the ideas that he had was to write Islamic hymns. Now we're talking 1887 to the coming 10 years, especially to attract converts and to make them comfortable in expressing their religion. So there are many ways of seeing how music and the tonal language can be appropriated and how people can find expressions for their religiosity in it. And of course, what becomes a challenge then is that if you choose a new expression that other people find is outside the tradition, there can be clashes of different sorts. It's really interesting thinking about hymns and the idea of hymnology, because it's something I've been working on quite a bit recently in terms of looking at some of the publications that came out during the Victorian period. There's sort of a kind of go-to hymnal in the, in the Jewish choral tradition, which has become known as the Blue Book, which was published in 1899. And you can really see parallels between that and some of the hymnals that have come out earlier on in the century in the Anglican tradition particularly. Um, so the most famous one being Hymns Ancient and Modern, which was first published in 1861. So there's quite a, a gap between that and then the, the Blue Book in the Jewish tradition but not even the, the musical terminology, but just the language that's used in terms of advertising these things to the different communities. The Jewish community really picked up on the idea of a hymnal and how important this was to the Jewish community to have a kind of collection of music that represented them as a community. Um, so you see all sorts of adverts and things like the Jewish Chronicle, where they even use the words hymnals, ancient and modern, you know, to describe the repertoire that they're performing. There's real parallels there between the two faiths. So it's really interesting hearing about it from a, an Islamic perspective as well. Now, I was just going to say, while they're not using hymn or, or psalm or anything like that, they re, the, the normal or the most common word is nasheed or anasheed in plural. Generally, the fans call the music nasheed music. They can appropriate any form. It parallels between, let's say, the new Christian tradition of, of 
hill songs that sprung out of Australia and some of the Nasheed music in its simplicity, in its repetitive form. But also you can find hip-hop, reggae, soul, blues, even metal with an Islamic soundboard. I think that would sound quite surprising to many listeners of Naked Reflections because we often associate Islam with not being musical. Was there much resistance both from the Muslim communities as well as wider society, Jonas? Well, yeah, there's a constant resistance because one of the unresolved issues, oh, well, there's a lot of unresolved issues in any theology, but one of the unresolved is the attitude to music and the correct attitude to music. So some would go as far to say that, well, the devil created music as a way of seducing humans, not to engage with the scriptures and reading the scriptures instead of wasting their time on music. And that's just proof that the devil is smart and seductive. And others will say that, no, 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 it's all in the lyrics and the attitude. If you sing about taking drugs, yeah, we will, of course, not embrace it. But there's nothing inherently wrong with an electric guitar. But there are debates about that also. Some things that the electric guitar is okay if it's not distorted, and some wouldn't mind having it distorted. All followed closely by discussions on social media, all the way to people publishing 400 pages books about the topic from a theological point of view. So it's a huge debate. Was there awareness of the growth of Muslim music or music from Muslim communities outside of those communities? I would have thought there would be a great deal of interest in some of these musical renditions. Well, it depends on the the music that I'm looking at is rather a Muslim thing. If I have a class in front of me of a mix between non-Muslim and Muslim students, if I say a name like Mahazain, all the Muslim students who engage in Islam, they will not. None of the others will will even know what I'm talking about. And this is an artist whose more popular videos are shown 300 million times on YouTube. But then again, if you go to other people like Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan, the big Kuali singer who died in the, in the 90s, he will be known to a lot of people who care about world music, who are engaged in music. I picked up my first Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan record in early 90s. And uh, this was not because I wanted to do research about it, because simply it's so good to listen to. It's a fantastic music. And there are a number of other Sufi projects that have been able to come across to a more general audience. But nothing comparable to, let's say, uh, the way that Leonard Cohen relates to Jewish heritage. There's nothing really comparable with that. Danielle, what's your interest in Jewish music? I think my interest in Jewish music comes from my own background as a singer in, in Jewish choirs, and it's it's repertoire that feels very familiar to me. I suppose I took for granted how surprising it would be for other people to hear Jewish music that actually sounded very Western. I think people generally are expecting something more along the lines of something like Fiddler on the Roof, you know, thinking about the the kind of typical sort of Jewish styles. And so when you're presented with choral music that sounds like hymns but with Hebrew, I think people do find that quite surprising, but in a very positive way. And that was something that that got me really interested in doing some more research into this, this period of music. 
um, particularly through a man who I did my PhD on called Charles Garland Verinder, who was this um, Anglican organist who ended up being the first organist of the first reformed synagogue in Britain. Um, and he worked there for 45 years. He was so dedicated to developing this choral tradition for the, for the synagogue and promoting it more widely so that people were aware of what was going on in the Jewish community in Victorian Britain. And to me, he just seemed like such an interesting person to you know, come from the background he had, but then dedicate so much of his life and actually give up a lot in order to be able to do it and then share this music widely. And I think as a singer, as a musical director, that really appeals to me. You know, One of my goals as a musician is to be able to share music as broadly as possible. Tell us a little bit about the company Awakening, Jonas, because that was a big player, wasn't it, in the emergence of Islamic pop? Awakening was started 2000 as a publishing house, basically. Four young men, three from Britain, one from the US, who had the idea to go into publishing, but try to go into publishing with a quality notion, because at that time, the most common Muslim publication was low budget, printed on low budget paper and And they wanted good quality paper, good print, good setting, good cover, everything. And then they quite immediately branched out, tried to do a CD with Muslim stand-up comedy that failed. And then in 2003, they contracted a friend of theirs who took the artist name Sami Youssef. And um, his first record propelled him into superstardom and allowed the company to expand because they had gained that fame to contract new artists, and among them, Mahazain, who's now their biggest star. So they have consolidated um, 20 years of publishing. They have reformed as a company. They have now gone into uh, modest fashion, film, uh, book publishing, music, and um, children's animated movies. So they, they are a true success and a global company. Uh, most Muslim publishing houses are rather local affairs or mm. national affairs. You mentioned Fiddler on the Roof, Danielle, tropes of this sort of Jewish music. Jonas mentioned Leonard Cohen. They seem to have entered the public consciousness. The same happening with these stars like Sami Yusuf? Not quite. But if you look at the US, for example, there is a generation of politically well-aware Muslims who have grown up inspired by Malcolm X, inspired by Muslim hip-hop, who take a place in the society and who are professionals of different sorts. So they enter all the the genres that there are. They write novels, they go into filmmaking, they go into acting, they go into politics, they go into academia. Danielle, what would be the Jewish equivalent that Jonas is talking about? I think there's a slightly longer history of well-known Jewish musicians working in secular music more generally. Usually, and certainly in in historic documents, what you've had is someone acknowledging that a particular person is Jewish and sort of leaving it at that. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do now is, is actually look at the identity behind that, how that affects someone's progression as a musician. I mean, certainly in the in the 20th century and 21st centuries, it's becoming increasingly understood that you have whole musicals based around Jewish themes, you know, not just Fiddler on the Roof, but other things like M, there's a musical Falsetto Land, which is based around Jewish families. And I think as a culture, it's become quite embedded. It's still based around certain personalities, maybe, or or character types. 
Could I just add to what Daniel is saying there? I mean, there is a big vast difference that you're pointing at. I mean, you might have a Jewish or a Muslim background and don't put that into your professional art or your business or whatever. Or you may make people aware of that you have this background, but still not make much out of it. All the way to people who propagate through music, for example, or celebrate the religion in in a novel or a film or whatever, or have, why not, an intellectual debate about it or even a critical angle to it, but informed by the fact that you have that family background from a Muslim background or a Jewish background. So you engage with it from another perspective than a non-Muslim or a non-Jew would do. I suspect, though, Jonas, that the music that you're talking about, it's a form of religiosity. Is that fair? Well, the music that I've specifically looked at wants to come across as devout and informed by faith. That's their purpose. But there are also artists that they have contracted who simply just avoid sensitive subjects and and are pure pop. But that's a later development in their stage. But there are also a lot of other artists out there with a Muslim background who do music, who just secular. They just happen to have a Muslim background. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week, Daniel Padley and Jonas Otterbeck. And we're talking about musical networks. As Dunya Hamash pointed out in the Naked Reflections show Living in Harmony, it's easy to forget that the roots of Jewish, Muslim, and for that matter, Christian music cross and traverse one another. It's all down to geography, apparently. Basically, the foundational musical system that is used in the Middle East is shared by all of these groups that lived together and coexisted together there for centuries, especially in the urban centers like uh, Baghdad, Aleppo, Halab, Damascus, Cairo. All of these urban centers had, you know, large Arab Christian and Arab Jewish communities that lived side by side in the same neighborhoods. So a lot of melodies and songs and texts were interchanged between these communities. And the kind of uh, foundation that allowed this to happen is the fact that they all use the same musical system, what we call today maqam. It's a long way from the Middle East that Dunya was talking about, or to Victorian England that Danielle, you're talking about, or 20th century Islamic pop stars that Jonas has been telling us about. But is there still this sense of a shared heritage? The music that I'm looking into is specifically fascinating because it is a mix of everything. One song, for example, like Mahazain's Medina, starts with a figure on a guitar that sounds very much suspiciously like uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, but without a distorted guitar. Uh, And then there comes in a beat, and then he starts singing sort of a, a slight reggae pop song, and breaks after a couple of minutes into an old classical Islamic song for like one minute celebrating how the prophet came to Medina for the first time, seeking out the protection of the people there, and then goes back to that kind of pop music. One song can contain several different languages, English, Arabic, or English, Urdu, and it can have a soundscape that mixes Arabic pop with British soul. In my mind, there's sort of two meanings to the word Jewish music making. There's the making of Jewish music, and then there's music making by the Jewish community. And in some ways, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. 
Um, there's obviously the, the religious aspect. It's hard to distinguish some of the Jewish choral tradition from this period from equivalent to hymnody in the Anglican Church, for instance, um, because of the soundscape. And particularly, if you think about something like the West London Synagogue, which is the Reform Synagogue in Britain at the time, using an organ, um, it's actually a sound that's very unfamiliar to most Jewish communities even now. And when you add that into the mix, it's got a very musical sound that's grounded in what we think of as, as church music. So there is this kind of cultural crossover. I think in terms of the music making of the Jewish community, both then and I think now in Britain, the Jewish community has been very assimilated into British society. And so there is a huge amount of crossover. A lot of the musicians that I'm looking at now, they might have a background in synagogue music, but actually they are professional opera singers or their recitalists on the concert scene. It's about taking skills that they've learned perhaps in the synagogue, but actually implementing them elsewhere. So it's like something that Jonas said before, it's not necessarily that you are not performing as a Jewish musician, you are performing as a musician. Can we go on to the question of gender? And in particular, some of the biggest stars in Islamic pop are women, aren't they, Jonas? Well, not the ones that I studied, because uh, Awakening that I looked at have, as of now, only managed to sign male artists, even though they have had the ambition since 2014 to find a female artist, and actually did sign one, but negotiations broke down at the very end before issuing an, a record. It has to do with religious ethics, actually, in a way, because it's easier for them to negotiate a male star on stage as people who are staged on, on a concert tend to be sexualized. And there are a certain, for some reason, a slightly more tolerance of the sexualization going on of a male artist than a female artist. So they have negotiated with themselves. Some of them are, are actually schooled in Islamic theology who are running the company. And they're trying to find an ethical solution, which I think they're found now. Some of the stars outside Awakening, however, are women like Yuna, for example, who's a global star by now, who dresses in modest fashion, doesn't sing about Islam, but in interviews, she makes sure that the, the interviewer understands that she has a very positive understanding of her Islamic faith. But you can also find Muna Haider, who's a hip-hop star from the US, who has a lot of following right now. But on the whole... Most uh, female Nasheed artists are local, so national local, while the global stars that have emerged, which are not that many, tend to be male. There's a few exceptions there. Abida Parveen, for example, from uh, the Pakistani Kuali scene, she should be understood as a global superstar. And what was the ethical solution that they came up with to allow uh, women to develop their musical repertoire? Well, if I start on the other end, actually, uh, not really answering the question, but uh, I did study how the male body was presented on stage. And there's an understanding that the male dancing body is more problematic than the non-dancing body. So dance is out of the question. And this, of course, goes for a female artist too. Another way of containing the body is uh, sitting down. So one of the stars that I've been following around, he moves around on stage, uh, but not dancing and then find he has a chair, a high chair that he sits down on. And when I saw the only female star that they've tried to contract, I've, I've saw the only concert that she made. 
she sat down. She was dressed modestly, sat down, had a veil on, but that's how she dresses generally. She was sort of stylish, dark colors, and didn't move around. So it's a small thing. It's a signal language of saying, hey, respect me. And it was to an 80% female audience, so she got a lot of respect and love. What challenges face Jewish female musicians? One of the things that's most interesting to me is trying to look at things like domestic music making, looking at things like professional opera singers. These were quite heavily female domains, particularly the domestic domain. And from my own perspective in terms of the challenges I'm facing is there's so little written about domestic music making during this period. And I'm having to look through things like literature, particularly literature written by women, to get into this world and actually work out what the role of women was in music. There's obviously slightly more written about the opera scene. And from the point of view of their perspective, there was the Jewish aspect, but there was also just the aspect of being a Victorian woman, the restrictions on your, I suppose, issues of modesty again there. There weren't really female singers. The West London Synagogue introduced them in 1865, and that was after three years of arguments between Berendir, who I spoke about before, and the wardens of the synagogue. And and that was to increase the quality of music in the synagogue. And they thought that mature female voices would carry more than the untrained boy choristers who, who sort of had to go through services on fairly minimal rehearsal and had sort of limited musical training. But it, it was a struggle for them from the point of view of a modesty perspective. I mean, actually, when they first introduced female singers into the West London Synagogue, they sat behind a screen and so they could be heard but not seen. Most of the, the female singers in the choir, when they got married, stopped singing in the choir. Some of them went on to be actually very successful opera singers or operetta performers. But that world in itself had issues of modesty you know the stage particularly in the mid-century was not an ideal space for female performers it was looked down upon by most of society that changed over the course of the century but this wasn't necessarily to do with their religion this was just to do with the the sort of moral compass of the Victorian period more generally. If I just can pick up an extra comment on that I mean Islamic theology contains the idea of aura That's the part of the body that you need to cover. And uh, a number of theologies consider that the female voice is part of the female aura, especially the singing voice of a woman cannot be heard by anyone else outside the family. And um, that's quite old school theology, but it still hinders women in Saudi Arabia to record. There are a number of of female singers who perform on weddings, etc., all female audience, but they can't record. And in Iran, for example, you will have to have another singer, female singer, singing in unison with you. So the listener can't separate who is singing. And therefore, you create sort of a soundscape that is morally acceptable. Now, those are are pretty harsh attitudes, but parts of that still exists in other communities. And for example, the Pakistani community are discussing this, most of them have lost that value, or rather they they know about it, but they do not think that that's ethically correct, which is a typical sort of change of values going on. You still know about the old value. You know that some will think like that, but you yourself are not bothered by it. 
rule in, in Judaism as well, particularly for Orthodox communities called Kolesha, so the voice of a woman, which is why still most synagogue choirs are all men, because of these rules that you, you can't hear a woman's voice outside of members of your own family. And again, the extent to which that is taken depends on the community and there have been various rabbinic discussions about where it's applicable and where it isn't in terms of religious worship, but also outside of that. But this is one of the other reasons why something like the West London Synagogue was so unusual for its time, as this was an additional consideration beyond levels of sort of what was acceptable for Victorian society. Like all good things, this dialogue must come to an end. My thanks to Danielle Padley and Jonas Otterbeck, and thanks to you two for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? It's quite a resource. Please check it out. You may also want to have a listen to other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more bracing discussion and some new guests.